0: Uh, well, good morning, everyone. Today, we are going to wrap up this series that we've been in for the last nine weeks. And um, the entire series boils down to this simple idea. You are not your own. You belong to God. And we've been saying that over and over and over and over. And you're probably now thinking like, I got it. I got it. But the reason we're saying it over and over is because I don't know if we all have it. I'm not sure if we all actually Believe this truth. I mean, maybe we agree with it on paper or when we see it on a slide or when we're in church, but most of us actually live our lives as if I am my own and I belong to myself. Because that's the modern creed, right? That I am my own and I am wholly responsible for my life. I'm responsible for figuring out who I am and what my identity is going to be. I'm responsible for figuring out my purpose and my meaning and then continually improving and optimizing and perfecting the best version of myself. And believing that, believing that I am my own, it sounds great, but as we said, it's exhausting, right? It's wearing us out. It's driving so much of our activity, so much of our anxiety. It's why we're always running on fumes, right? It's why we're always just surviving, not really thriving. And so the good news has been, you don't have to live that way, right? You don't have to be that way. You can actually find rest from all of your exhaustion in Jesus. And you can embrace an entirely different understanding of who you are, that you are not your own and you belong to God. But to believe this and to actually live this way, we said there's a few things we have to do. Uh, We have to first open our hands and simply belong to God. That's what we've been saying. It's what we've been singing. Jillian wrote that song so that we could remind ourselves of this truth that it starts with this posture of simply surrendering, opening our hands, surrendering who I am Surrendering my life and and my control and then receiving from God the identity that he gives me and, and the life that he has for me. And Jesus even said, it's an abundant life. It's an amazing life. It will be an eternal life. But we have to open our hands to surrender and then receive it from him. Now, we've also said we have to figure out how to resist self-medication because so many of us, when we're exhausted and empty in life, um, we figure out how to cope with that through uh, oftentimes unhealthy coping mechanisms and self-medication. And it doesn't actually help us. It actually deepens the burden of our self-belonging. And then we said we also have to resist self-improvement. Because the answer to all of our exhaustion and all of our anxiety is not found in working harder or trying harder or just finding a new method for living our best life now, right? We can't improve or optimize our way out of all of this. That's actually created a lot of the problems to begin with. Now, those three things are really at the heart of belonging to God. And they're inward directed, right? They're about um, each of us personally. They're about taking a serious inventory of our lives and our hearts and our souls and our time and our habits and what we believe about ourselves. And I want to suggest, if you will begin to do that, right? If you will just enter that process to begin to deeply think about who you are and surrender yourself to God and and resist these other things, it's going to take some time. But if you begin to do that, you will start to experience something new, It's not something that happens overnight. It doesn't happen immediately. But slowly and surely, you will begin to experience peace and rest and a sense that everything's going to be okay. Not because you've got everything in your life under control, but because you've started to let go of your need to have everything in your life under your control. Because you belong to God and your life is safely and securely in his Hands. Now, uh, there's one more challenge to all of this. Um, even as we do this work in our own lives, we will still live in a world dominated by the modern creed every single day, right? Countless, imperceptible, but very powerful ways are going to be telling you and coming at you and reinforcing to you the idea that you are your own and that you do belong to yourself, And so uh, the big question becomes, how do we live in our world? Right? This is the outward focus challenge. If I want to belong to God, and, and wherever you are in your journey of faith today, if that's your desire, I want to embrace a different way of seeing and understanding myself and belong to God. How do I belong to God in a world that's always going to push me in the other direction? And Jesus actually gets at this idea One time he was talking about his followers in John 17, and he said that we are to be in the world, but not of the world. And and if you grew up going to church, you maybe have heard uh, this phrase before. It means we live in the world, right? but we have a different set of values. We have a different perspective. We have a different understanding of who we are. So, So in a sense, we are not of the world. And that doesn't mean the world, whatever the world is, is evil, the world out there. It doesn't mean that we begin to look down on other people or judge other people who have different beliefs than ourselves. A lot of followers of Jesus make that mistake. But God loves His world. He made this world, He made everybody in this world, He loves every single person in this world. He loves this world so much, He sent His only Son into this world. But what Jesus is saying is that when you start to trust in him and follow him and belong to him, there's going to be a tension that you're going to have to navigate. And so today, I just want to answer this question, how do we live in our world? By giving you three really simple words. And they are like uh, postures, right? Postures that we have towards our world, towards our culture, uh, towards other people in our lives who maybe have different beliefs. And um, these three postures all start with the letter P. So you're going to remember them, all right? They're going to be easy to remember, and we're going to have a little quiz next Sunday to make sure. No, we won't do that. But hopefully they'll be memorable, because I think they're at the heart of what it means to live in our world. So here's the first posture. Be prodigal. Be prodigal. We talked about this word a few weeks ago, and... Sometimes we have a negative association with this word. Prodigal just means to show extravagance or lavish abundance that appears wasteful. It means showing grace and compassion and generosity and kindness towards others, whether they deserve it or not. It means doing things that are right and good because they're right and good not for any benefit we receive. It means not making all of our decisions based on what's going to be the most efficient or productive, but maybe what's going to be the most loving and the most gracious. It means forgiving other people. A lot, right? How much should we forgive other people, Jesus? Seven times? Seven times 70 times. And the reason that we should be prodigal is because Jesus was prodigal. He was prodigal with his time. He was prodigal with his grace. He was prodigal with his compassion towards other people. He was prodigal with his entire life. In that same passage in John 17, Jesus is praying to his father. And here's what he says about his followers. He says, as you sent me into the world, I have sent Them into the world. And then later after the resurrection, he's hanging out with his disciples, and Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Jesus sends us, his followers, into the world in the same way that God sent him into the world, which means we embody the presence of Jesus in the world. Which means if Jesus was prodigal in his love towards other people, we will be too. And we're not going to do that perfectly all the time. We're certainly not going to be consistent about it. But if we belong to him, it'll start to become an orienting posture in how we live in our world. So uh, the first posture is to be prodigal. Uh, The second posture is to be prophetic. Be prophetic. Now, I'm not talking about end times prophecy. uh, And I'm not saying that you have to go out and be like an Old Testament prophet, right? Where they would preach these messages in the town square. And they would tell everyone, like, you've got it all wrong. You think you belong to God, but you don't. You're actually belonging to yourself. And so you need to repent and change your life. I'm not talking about that. What I'm saying is, if you take the truth seriously, that you belong to God... And if you begin to live your life that way, then you will already be preaching a prophetic message with your actions and your life. People are going to see some of the choices you make, some of the habits that you have. They're going to see your perspective, and they might not understand it. They might not get it. They might think you're strange. They might be actually even turned off. And with as much encouragement as I can give you today, I want to invite you to confidently embrace that role and posture of being prophetic. So uh, maybe when some new form of technology comes along that everyone else is immediately adopting and you maybe decide not to, people might think that's weird. I have some friends who um, were raising their kids, their kids are older now, but when they had their kids uh, and they were raising their families, they just decided not to have a TV at all in their house the entire time they had kids. And it wasn't because TV was evil, right? It's just, they just decided for them, it was too much of a distraction and too much of a detriment. And they just wanted to be fully present with one another. And that decision was prophetic, right? Because they were different because they couldn't engage in all the conversations about what happened on the office or breaking bad or you know any of those things. And people publicly said, "Wow, we really admire you for it." And then everybody was like, "That's weird. Like I would never do that. Like why what is going on with them? Why would they do that?" Or maybe it's when you tell your boss, "I don't want to work more hours. I don't want a promotion." I don't want to be paid more. I don't want more responsibility and more authority because there are other things in my life that are more important right now. That will be odd in the workplace. That will be prophetic. Or maybe when you make choices about your body or your sexuality that are at the odds with choices other people are making, that are at the odds with a culture that says, it's your body, it's your choices, it's your sexuality. You should be able to do whatever you want. And you're actually saying, no, actually, I don't believe that. It's not my body. It's not my life. I belong to God. That will be prophetic. The apostle Peter uh, wrote a letter to early followers of Jesus who were living in various places all around the Roman Empire. And here's how he started that letter. He says this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect Exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So Peter calls these followers of Jesus God's elect, which means you're chosen by God, you belong to God. But then he also calls them exiles. Right? And the word there just means somebody who is living in a land that is not their home anymore. It means an alien, a, a sojourner, a traveler, a stranger. In the land Now, his friends he's writing to, they're not literally exiles or aliens. People weren't as mobile or, or transient. They didn't move around as much uh, back then. So he's writing to friends who are living in these actual places, right? Galatia and Cappadocia. People who probably were born in those places, had lived those places their entire lives, still had all their friends and all their families in those places. But what he's saying is, now that you follow Jesus, and now that you belong to God, It's not going to feel like home anymore. Because you're going to be different than a lot of other people. You're going to believe something different. You're going to live in different ways. You're going to feel like a stranger at times, an alien, an exile, living in a foreign land. And so later in the letter, Peter says this. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles... To abstain from sinful desires, which wage war against your soul. So it's like he's saying, uh, your desire is going to be to belong to yourself, but don't do that. Resist that urge because it'll kill your soul. And that's what we've been talking about for so long. It's killing our souls, right? And so keep belonging to God and resist those urges. And then he says this. Live such good lives among the pagans. That though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that He visits us. So let's break this down real quick. Uh, Live good lives means do good, be good, be kind, be generous, be prodigal toward others. Uh, Live good lives among the pagans. That sounds kind of derogatory. It wasn't back then. Uh, Pagan was just a term for people living in the Roman Empire who worshiped the pagan gods, who was most of the people in the Roman Empire who were not followers of Jesus. So he's saying, live good lives among all the other people in your life that are not like you, that don't share your faith or your beliefs. So your faith is not this personal, private relationship with God that's just between me and him. It's not something that you just do at home or that you just do for an hour on Sunday mornings. It's the life you live with your neighbors, with your coworkers, with your friends, with people who are very different than you. And when you live this life among people who are different than you, what will the result be? They will accuse you of doing wrong. <laughs> A lot of people won't get it. When they see more of your life and more of the decisions you've made and more of your practices, they're not going to understand. This doesn't mean they're going to be hostile towards you. It just means they're going to look at you and think, you're missing out on something. I can't believe they don't have a TV in their house, right? I can't believe that she hasn't slept with him yet. What's she waiting for? I can't believe that he is still fighting for his marriage. Why doesn't he just leave her? He would be so much happier without her. I can't believe that she didn't want the promotion. I can't believe that he didn't take advantage of that opportunity. That's what it means to be accused of doing wrong. And it will happen when you live a life of belonging to God that is prophetic. Now, what I would like to say at this point is that when you start belonging to God, when you begin to live in this way that is a bit different, that is a bit countercultural and a bit prophetic, that people will actually be curious about it. And they're going to be attracted to it, right? And they're going to come to you and they're going to want to understand better this faith and this way of life that you have. And they're going to say, what's the answer? And you're going to say, it's Jesus. And they're going to say, what must I do to be saved? And you're going to tell them all of these things. And not only will your life change, but other people's lives around you will begin to change. And if we all start doing that together, we can change the entire culture and the entire world. And I'm I've actually preached some pretty good sermons that have inspired people in that way. I think they were good. (laughs) But I'm not sure I fully believe that anymore. Because only God can change the world. Not us. Because most of the time in the Bible, the prophets were never accepted. They were only ridiculed. Because Jesus The greatest prophet, the son of God, the guy who had the best opportunity to be the most attractive and most winsome person he could ever be. And he was at times, right? People were drawn to him. They were attracted to him because he was so prodigal in his his love and his compassion towards other people. But he was also prophetic. And many of his followers eventually left him. The crowds eventually turned on him, and the entire culture crucified him. Even Peter makes it clear, if we could put the verse back up there. He says that though they will accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God when? On the day he visits us. That's the day he returns. On the day when, as Paul says, every knee bows and every tongue confesses. On the day when all people see the fullness of who Jesus really is. But that might not happen in any of our lifetimes. It's possible that your good deeds and my good deeds, that our prodigal love, our prophetic witness, might not make a big difference in anyone else's life around us. God may not use us to change the world. He, he might, but the point is simple. You don't make these kind of choices in your life because it's going to produce results. Right? You don't do it in order uh, to achieve something or to accomplish something or to, to go out and change the world. You live this way simply because you belong to God now and not to yourself Here's another way to put it. God calls us to be faithful, not successful. See, success is, is one of the highest values in a I am my own and I am, I belong to myself world. But it's not one of God's highest values. He doesn't call you to be a successful Christian. Or a successful parent, or a successful employee, or a successful student, or a successful leader, or a successful evangelist for his message. He just calls us to be faithful and then to trust him with the results. And that actually leads to a third posture that I want to give you to be prodigal, be prophetic, and be patient. Patience means we're not in a hurry because God is never in a hurry. Patience isn't focused on the outcome or the results. Patience is trusting in God's infinite perspective, not in my own limited perspective. Patience is about endurance and perseverance, running the marathon of faith. Uh, Every now and then, I ask our staff here at New Denver uh, to read and discuss a book together. Um, It might be a book about leadership or theology or the Bible or ministry or some important social topic. Um, So a few years ago, I asked our staff to read this book, The Patient Ferment of the Early Church by Alan Kreider. And uh, when I threw the idea out to our staff, there were um, loud and understandable Groans. Um, because it's a history book. It's this detailed historical look at the first 400 years of the early church when followers of Jesus faced harassment and sometimes even persecution. But I think everyone uh, was surprised by how rich our discussions became and what we learned because there were three really powerful truths that we learned in this book. Number one, um, early followers of Jesus never developed Mission strategies, vision statements, evangelistic initiatives, or plans for changing the world. It's just not found anywhere in any of their writings or in any of their discussions, which is so unlike us today, right? We can't do anything in life without first developing a purpose statement and a mission statement and a strategy and smart goals and how we're going to tangibly measure success and all of those things. And there's not a single whiff of that anywhere. For 400 years. Uh, Second, early followers of Jesus were extremely countercultural. They were both prodigal and prophetic. And it was totally unique. They presented alternative ways of living that were often misunderstood and ridiculed. Because it was just so at odds with the dominant culture they lived in. In their business practices, they were different. In their understanding of sexuality, in their challenge of gender roles and their elevation of women in leadership, in their care for the poor, in their lavish, prodigal compassion on the sick, in their insistence that all human life is sacred and it should never be taken for any reason, they were extremely countercultural. But then third. One of the most important virtues they had was patience. The earliest Christians wrote and talked about patience all the time. By the way, they never talked about evangelism. They never talked about changing the culture. But patience was a dominant theme. There were major works dedicated to understanding patience. In fact, there was a guy named Tertullian. He was one of the early uh, church authors and leaders in the church. He was the first guy to use the term the Trinity, Right. So he was a bigwig, and he sat down and decided to write a series of books on the most important virtues in the Christian life. And the very first one is on patience. You see, I think they knew and when you're like a stranger living in a foreign land, patience is going to be one of the most important virtues that you can have. Now, <clears throat> here's the catch. All these early followers of Jesus did was live their lives as if they belonged to God, not to themselves. They were prodigal, they were prophetic, and they were patient. And they endured and persevered when things got hard. And slowly, ever so Slowly, Like, so slowly, you can't even see it happening. You can't point to a single event. It's like the process of fermentation happening. You can't actually see it happening, but you know something is going on underneath the surface. Slowly, 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 over the course of 400 years, something unbelievable and inconceivable happened. This tiny little band Of just a few dozen people, Jewish people, following a crucified Roman criminal in the backwoods province of Israel, in the Roman Empire, started the movement and eventually took over the entire empire. And it changed the course of human history. Which means, if we will just be patient... In 400 years, we can change the world, right? No, that's not what it means at all. That's not the point. The point of patience is it's not in my hands anymore. It's up to God because we belong to him. And we're just going to live the way that he made us to live because that's the way he made all humans to live. And it will always be prodigal. And it will often also be prophetic. And it will be marked by a deep patience and a trust that if God wants to use me and if he wants to use us as a community of faith and if he wants to change others and if he wants to change the world as a result, so be it and we'll give him the praise for that. But if God also just wants to change me and he just wants to change my life, and he just wants to liberate me from the exhaustion and the emptiness that I'm experiencing of the burdens of self-belonging, then that in itself is worth trusting in him for. So what is our only comfort in life and in death? That you are not your own. That you belong, body and soul, in life and in death to your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. Lord, I pray that you would help us to trust you with every part of our lives, um, for those burdens that we have been carrying that are exhausting and wearing us out, but that are still hard to give up or let go of. Or God, if there's just a part of our lives today that we've been holding on to, we are maintaining ownership and control over that we need to let go of, I pray that you would help us to trust you, to know that you are a good father. You are our divine parent, and we are your daughters and your sons, and you love us more than you. We love ourselves. And you always want what's best for us. And so whatever we need to do to open our hands and our hearts and our lives, help us to trust you with that this morning. pray this in your name. Amen.